Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, good morning if you're in Europe, and good evening if you happen to be in Asia. Welcome to our April 2019 Tosca 3030. You may have noticed that we changed the topic. We originally had uh, one topic, and then we changed it at the last minute. Why do we do that? Because EPA gave us uh, uh, early Easter present. <laughs> right. <laughs> so open up the email. There are two pre-publication, very critical pre-publication proposed rules, which we're going to discuss uh, during this uh, TOSCA 3030. They all have to do with CBI, and so we actually revamped the original topic that we were going to talk about, the uh, prioritization rulemaking that EPA issued earlier, uh, to focus only on the CBI aspects. Next slide. Uh, next slide. Well, I'm Herbert Stryker. Next slide. And I'm joined here by my associate, uh, Javine Nakumaram, and she's going to chat a little bit towards the end on the chemical data reporting proposed rule that has just come out. Mm -hmm. Next slide. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about three topics. The first is EPA's release of health and safety studies that are voluntarily submitted by companies during prioritization and risk evaluation. Second topic will be EPA's proposed plan to review confidential business information claims that were asserted by companies uh, to ensure that their substances uh, stay on the confidential task inventory. Recall, there are two inventories. There's a public inventory, there's a confidential inventory. Both together make up the TOSCA chemical substances inventory. And then the last topic is expansion of CBI claim justification needed for the 2020 CDR. It's CDR time again, comes around every four years. In 2012, it was five years, but now it comes around every four years. EPA issued a proposed rule, or pre-publication of a proposed rule, that re substantially revamps the CDR. Today, we're only going to focus on the CBI aspects. I suspect that next month's topic will be a more fulsome review and consideration of the proposed rule for revamping the information requirements under the, uh, for the 2020 CDR. Next slide. So let's talk a little bit about CBI. So one of the things that the new TOSCA did, the Lautenberg uh, Chemical Safety Act, uh, is they did substantially strengthen uh, the uh, protection, uh, substantially, uh, substantially increase the disclosure of information uh, by, uh, by companies under TOSCA. Um, and there's, there's no question, if you look at Section 14, which is the provision of uh, TOSCA that now deals with the confidential business information, uh, there is a broad disclosure requirement. Uh, there's still preservation in some areas of what's con uh, generally considered trade secrets, uh, but there is a, a, a broad disclosure requirement. Now, however, when it comes to specific chemical identity, I think Congress recognized that that is a valuable trade secret. In fact, in most cases, particularly with polymers or other areas of technology, it's really small variations in chemical structure that account for a chemical's novel properties and its technological edge and position in the marketplace. You know, when you put out a patent, you don't actually disclose generally the specific chemical identity of your invention. You have broad claims. It's very, very difficult, almost impossible to figure out precisely what it is that you plan to uh, produce and introduce into commerce. Uh, so the specific chemical identity is still maintained as a trade secret, even if it is subject to patent disclosure. Now, 
On the other hand, notwithstanding the, the, the criti critical importance of uh, a specific chemical identity and the recognition that Section 2 of TSCA did not change in connection with the amendment to Lundberg uh, amendments, and that actually does have a strong uh, impetus to preserve U the U.S.'s technological edge, the environmental groups are systematically insisting on more and more disclosure. They have filed Freedom of Information Act requests in a number of areas. They have filed lawsuits in a number of areas. They have commented aggressively and frequently to EPA, insisting that EPA disclose more and more information to the public. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. Next slide. So the first topic, as I said, is the release of full study reports submitting connection with prioritization and risk evaluation. Next slide. So in March, now this is not an April, uh, proposed rule. It's a March proposed rule. Uh, EPA issued a Federal Register notice, and I give you the citation, that proposes to evaluate whether it can make, on one hand, high priority designations for 20 chemicals, but on the other hand, and more importantly in some ways, low priority designations for 20 chemicals. Now recall that Congress requires EPA to systematically review chemicals on the TSCA inventory that are designated as active, and you've all identified chemicals as active as part of the active-inactive rule recently, and then pick uh, those chemicals that it considers to be a priority for risk assessment uh, and risk potentially risk management. But also, it required uh, EPA to, at a minimum, select 20 chemicals, that's a minimum, uh, that would be considered a low priority uh, for risk evaluation. Now, if you sort of think about it, when something is designated as low priority for risk evaluation, it means that the agency has reviewed the uh, conditions of use for that chemical and the hazard information uh, and has concluded that that chemical is not likely uh, to present an unreasonable risk to health and safety. So that is a kind of a valuable designation and may be possibly used as a marketing tool by companies, uh, the, a positive designation as a low priority substance. The comments on this proposal are due uh, June 19th. I uh, recommend that people think about commenting. There's sufficient time to put together comments. But I think what's very important to think about, particularly if you have an interest in low-priority designations or maybe perhaps chemicals in the future that might be considered low-priority, uh, the question is going to be whether the existing data that EPA has in its files, which is usually uh, data from the High Production Volume Program back in the 1990s, or the SIDS, the OECD SIDS program, uh, also continuing in the 1990s, but continuing to some extent in the years 2000, will be enough for EPA to make an affirmative determination that these chemicals are a low priority uh, for risk evaluation. Next slide. Why is that important? Because there is, under uh, EPA's rules and in the statute, a default to high. So if it turns out that after EPA reviews the information on these low priority candidates, and even after asking, uh, extending the comment period uh, for 90 days, uh, it still doesn't get enough information, then EPA is required by statute to propose to designate those chemicals as a high priority. So what happens is you enter into the program on the assumption that you're a low priority, all good news. Uh, however, when EPA gets into the details, they decide, well, we don't have enough data to really make that determination. Uh, and then you sort of find yourself all of a sudden being proposed for high priority, and you're proposed ahead of all the 5,700,000 other chemicals that could be designated as a high priority. That's not a good thing. And so you basically move up in the queue if there's insufficient data. Uh, 
For EPA, they make an affirmative determination that you're low risk. And not only that, the manufacturers and importers of that chemical will be subject to the um, uh, Section 6 uh, risk evaluation fee, which is some $1.3 million uh, per chemical. So not only is it a problem for your chemical, it's going to be a costly exercise. So it's very, very important to sort of make sure that EPA has enough data on these low-priority chemicals. If you have a stake in them or any of them, any chemicals that get proposed in the future as low-priority, to make sure EPA has enough data uh, to make an affirmative determination. It remains to be seen what EPA will consider to be sufficient data. Uh, but, I, but I would not uh, – there's a lot of pressure uh, for environmental groups to insist that EPA have more and more information about chemicals. You can see that in the Violet Pigment 29 proceeding, and you can expect uh, in this case that the environmental groups will be scrutinizing uh, these determinations very closely, very carefully. A low priority determination is a final agency action. It's subject to judicial review, uh, and I think EPA will be mindful of that as it starts evaluating these chemicals and making uh, a, attempting to make a low priority uh, designation. So the essential question is, will reach data be needed to ensure that EPA has sufficient information on these chemicals. When I say REACH, I mostly mean European REACH, but as you know, there's also Korea REACH. There's data on chemicals being generated in Taiwan. The universe of data on chemicals, particularly uh, the higher tiered endpoints, uh, is not the HPV program. It's not the SIDS program. The HPV SIDS program are, are largely base set data. The, you know, in general, the highest uh, level study is a 28-day study. Uh, it's really in these REACH-type programs, whether from the EU, Korea, or Taiwan, that you're starting to see uh, long-term studies for various endpoints. And so the question really is going to be, to the extent that EPA needs data on chronic endpoints, uh, will it have to rely on the REACH data? Next slide. I think the answer is yes, by the way. And you can see this in uh, Volapiga 29, which is, as you know, the first risk evaluation of the first 10 chemicals that EPA has completed, uh, that EPA relied on REACH data. Uh, and, but I interestingly, uh, and as, as I've sort of pointed out in at least the trade press, I think properly uh, refused to release the full study reports, uh, making the determination that they were confidential business information. NGOs complained bitterly, and now EPA has now released lightly redacted versions of the full study reports and you can see those in the docket that I've given you, and the NGOs are still not satisfied. Now, when I say lightly redacted, I have gone through them, and let me tell you what uh, the company in that instance did, which I think was quite good. Uh, they have a very bold disclaimer, you know, do not use this for REACH, do not use this for Europe, Korea, Taiwan, anywhere else you can think of. They're both, right? That's the front, right on the front on each page. But more importantly, they redacted some critical administrative details, which are not really health and safety information, but they eliminated... You know, like who the study sponsors were, the date of the, of the test, all kinds of little things that really are needed when you fill out the IUCLA dossier for Europe, and they're needed when you fill out the summaries for Korea or for Taiwan. So I think that a company could legitimately uh, argue uh, if, they were, if, it, if they had brought a challenge in a national court in Europe or if there are courts in Korea uh, or Taiwan, uh, that, uh, that whoever is using the information that EPA released on the TOSCA does not have legitimate access to the full study report because they, what EPA has released finally is not the full study report. So we'll see how that all plays out. 
obviously maintaining the commercial value of uh, REIT studies is critical to companies. Uh, these uh, studies are becoming more and more valuable, particularly as different countries adopt reach-type programs and have data compensation provisions. And it's absolutely important that if companies donate uh, this information to EPA so that they can do a proper risk assessment on Tosca, that they don't lose their data compensation rights. And so it still remains to be seen how much uh, how this will play out. At the moment, we have lightly redacted studies in the docket. Uh, NGOs still complaining. Uh, but I would submit that their complaints are not warranted. Next next slide. So let's talk about the second proposed rule that EPA came out with this time in April. So this is procedures for review of CBI claims uh, to protect from disclosure uh, the identity of chemicals on the Tosca inventory. Next one. So this is a pre-publication rule issued April 10th. 60-day comment period from the data publication of the Federal Register. I haven't checked, but I don't believe it's yet been published. Uh, TOSCA requires EPA to issue a rule explaining how it plans to review CBI claims for specific chemical identity of chemicals that companies asserted in connection with the active-inactive rule. So when you did a notice of uh, activity under Form A in the active-inactive rule, you had an opportunity at that time uh, to assert uh, the confidential confidentiality of the uh, chemical identity to ensure that that chemical remains on the confidential inventory. Now, you also, EPA gave you the opportunity at that time to voluntarily substantiate your claim. You didn't have to, uh, but you could. And so under this proposed rule, companies that asserted their claim and provided a voluntary substantiation would be exempt from this rule if they didn't provide an upfront substantiation, they would be subject to this rule. Also, secondly, another exemption is that companies who identify a previous submission, and these are largely CDR submissions, and there are some others, uh, where the company claimed a uh, uh, confidentiality of the specific chemical identity, and that submission was made five years before the deadline for submitting under this rule, uh, then they also would be exempt. Next slide. Uh, EPA is going to require that CDX be used uh, to substantiate uh, CBI claims. They're going to require that substantiation be filed no later than 90 days after the effective date of this rule, which will be sometime in, uh, in, in April, obviously. Uh, and there's the same filing deadline if you intend to rely on a prior submission. If you're relying on a prior submission, you have to provide information uh, on the submission date, submission type, case number, transaction ID, or equivalent identifier so EPA can identify your prior submission. If, very importantly, if you miss this 90-day deadline, then EPA may disclose the specific chemical identity without further notice. So that's very, very important. Be mindful of this 90-day deadline. I, am, I don't know if this is going to be a violation of TOSCA if you don't. I expect not because you're not required to sort of uh, CBI claim. But the penalty is that you lose your confidentiality of the chemical will go on the public inventory. Now, it's also possible that another company will sort of claim for that same substance, but I wouldn't rely on someone else to carry your water if I could avoid it. So if the CBI claim is rejected, EPA will notify you, uh, and they will give you 30 days to cure. Uh, and if, uh, if they deny your CBI claim, uh, you can go to court. Um, yeah. And uh, so you can join the NGOs of court. And uh, uh, you need to keep records for all this stuff for five years. Excellent. So the, um, 
there's 10 years of uh, CBI protection. I think you can ask for an extension, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can ask for extension. But the initial protection period is 10 years. EPA decided, and this is quite controversial, I would hope companies weigh in. We may be contacting many of you to see if you want to have a coalition to weigh in. Uh, but they decided that the, um, uh, that the date, uh, the filing date of the, uh, uh, the, the NOA, the Notice of Activity, uh, uh, 4A is the date that determines the period of disclosure. However, if someone else claimed that substance identity is confidential in a prior submission, let's say CDR, that's the date that triggers 10 days of protection. So that's very, very controversial. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me that that's mandated. Uh, I certainly would expect that the NGOs would agree with that. They probably want substantiation to begin last century to, uh, or 10 years ago, uh, but certainly uh, this is a lot sooner than I would have thought, and I think this is something that companies need to comment on. Next slide. So how does this work in practice? So let's say on uh, July 1, 2016, first company claims specific chemical identity as CBI in a CDR report, then 10 years starts from July 1, 2016. Even if that same company files an NOA for May on two years later, on January 1, 2018, claiming the specific chemical identity confidential, the 10 years still starts from the first time that company asserted the CBI claim. Uh, by the way, it's five years prior, so you, you, the best, even if it was asserted five, ten years ago, it would be uh, five years prior. So you would only lose five years out of those ten years. So now, if a second company, here's a surprising thing, if a second company comes around and they file a, they file a uh, notice of uh, activity form A on February 1, 2018, after the first company, uh, the uh, CBI protection period still runs from the first company's submission back in 2016. Very, very surprising. I think that needs a very careful look at the statute and the congressional history, and uh, uh, I would not take this at face value, but obviously this does, in some cases, or many cases, relinquish uh, and shorten substantially uh, the uh, congressionally contemplated period of substantiation. Um, so, next slide. Okay, so I mentioned that uh, NGOs have filed lawsuits. Um, so what did they do? So a couple of things they did. Well, first of all, there was a Freedom of Information Act request on the Transparency and Science Rule. You remember the old Transparency and Science Rule? We had a task of 3030 on that. Um, and they, they asked, uh, they filed a Freedom of Information Act request asking for uh, all documents relating to transparency, right? So, and I, I don't know if that was granted or not, but quite, 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 quite impressive. Um, I don't know, I haven't checked, but it's probably worth checking to see how many uh, Freedom of Information Act requests have been filed by environmental groups in the last, uh, since the new TOSCA, but I suspect there are quite a few. Uh, and uh, secondly, um, we've already discussed this, but EDF filed a lawsuit uh, in the D.C. circuits uh, over the uh, active inactive inventory notification rule. And I was very surprised when I heard that because I was trying to figure out what it is they could possibly be complaining about. And indeed, what they're complaining about is the CBI provisions uh, in that rule. Uh, the first thing they uh, alleged was improper uh, was that uh, EPA allowed any person to maintain uh, the uh, confidential status of a substance on the uh, confidential inventory, even if that person had not been the original submitter of that chemical 
uh, to the Tosca inventory back in the uh, uh, 1970s, 70s, uh, or the original PMN submitter. Uh, I'm not sure where that issue is going to go, uh, but I think more importantly for these purposes, uh, they, the uh, EDF also took issue with the fact that EPA alleged fail, allegedly failed to require that companies substantiate a kind of an important prong of, of uh, CBI, right? So important prong of trade secrecy, there are lots of different requirements to maintain a trade secret, but one very, very important requirement to maintain a trade secret, according to the restatement of law on trade secrecy, is uh, that the substance cannot be, the identity cannot be readily discoverable through reverse engineering. And you sort of think about it, of all the possible justifications and questions that you have to answer in respect to justification, uh, CBI justification, you know, do you have a contract in place? Have you disclosed to third parties? Those are fairly easy to answer. The one that's very tough to answer is can someone readily discover through reverse engineering your secrets? That is a very complex facts-driven question. Um, and so what EPA did in the uh, NOA rule is it made that part of the certification, did not have a separate question, although it did in the proposed rule, but eliminated in the final rule, did not have a separate question on uh, uh, reverse engineering. Uh, in this rule, they do not have a separate question on reverse engineering, so they've repeated that. It's only part of the certification, but no separate finding in terms of substantiation as to whether the substance identity can be reverse engineered. Uh, I was at the D.C. Circuit uh, listening to oral argument uh, in October, and uh, quite frankly, the three panel judges were trying to figure out, get EPA to explain, you know, why that wasn't the most critical thing in terms of the... Uh, uh, trade secrecy associated with chemical identity. So if the court renders a decision, which is expected this year, if that decision says that you have to substantiate uh, trade secrecy, then several things are going to happen. One is everybody who voluntarily uh, substantiated their, uh, uh, their CBI claim in connection with the active and active rule, that, that substantiation is going to be invalid, and so they can't, won't, be able to take, they won't be able to take advantage of the exemption that they have under this rule, or they will have to supplement that with more likely their substantiation uh, with the information mm -hmm. that the court mandates. So we'll have to see what the court comes up with. I'm turning this over to my colleague, who doesn't have very long to go, <laughs> on uh, CDR. But don't forget, we will have more CDR next month. Great. Thanks, Herb. So I'll briefly cover the CBI aspects of the CDR proposed rule. So as many of you know, on Friday, EPA released a pre-publication version of its proposed rule amending CDR requirements. So this has not been published in the Federal Register yet, but once it does, there will be a 60-day comment period. Um, EPA is proposing changes to a number of different parts of the CDR, but also including uh, making confidentiality claims uh, for information that companies submit to EPA under the CDR. So EPA is doing this in order to better align with the LCSA amendments in making CBI claims and CBI substantiation under TOSCA Section uh, 14. So as a reminder, the LCSA uh, requires that all confidentiality claims be substantiated at the time the information is submitted to EPA. And in making a CBI claim, the LCSA requires uh, that certain statements be included, like the information is likely to cause substantial harm to the competitive position of the company or that the company's taken measures to protect the information. And the LCSA also has requirements for certification of a claim, that the, a statement that the claim is true and correct. So these kinds of elements are incorporated in the proposed uh, CDR rule. 
So people submitting uh, information under the CDR, they, they can assert CBI claims for that information at the time it's submitted. Uh, the proposed rule outlines what information cannot be claimed CBI, which include the public contact information if it's voluntarily provided, chemical identities of substances listed on the public TSCA inventory, certain processing and use data elements, and then uh, if a response is left blank or designated as not known. Now, it's important to make these CBI claims at the time of submission. Otherwise, EPA will consider the information not confidential, and they'll make it public without further notice. Uh, so the proposed rule requires that confidentiality claims be substantiated at the time of submission, which is consistent with the LCSA. However, substantiation is not required at the time uh, the claim is made for five production, vol uh, five production volume data elements, which include the production volumes for 2016, 2017, and 2018, and the volume uh, of the domestically, uh, yeah, volume domestically manufactured in 2019 and volume imported in 2019. Uh, and this is because the LCSA says that specific production and import volumes aren't subject to the substantiation requirements. So also exempt from upfront substantiation is supplier information associated with joint submissions, such as the supplier identity and the trade name and the composition of the mixture. Uh, the proposed rule also has a list of questions that you have to give detailed written answers to and when you make CBI claims for each data element, and those questions, they are all listed in the proposed rule. Um, so uh, looking at chemical identity, as Herb mentioned, uh, uh, Congress recognized that chemical identity is very important confidential information, so substances that are on the confidential portion of the TOSCA inventory can be claimed CBI. And this is referring to the specific chemical identity. This does not include the generic chemical names or the TOSCA accession number. Uh, so again, when you, uh, when you do a substantiation, there are a number of questions you have to answer, the same that were listed previously, and, and uh, four additional questions as well. So those are important that you have to submit those in writing when you're substantiating the claims. Um, and for site information, EPA is proposing to require uh, assertion and substantiation of a confidentiality claim at the time of submission for the linkage between a company or technical contact identity and the chemical substance information. Uh, and then once again, there are uh, different questions that you're required to answer uh, in substantiating such claim, and they're listed on the slide. Uh, as for production and use information, uh, the LCSA prohibits that generic descriptions of a process used to manufacture or process a chemical and uses of the substance that would be shared with the general public or with industry be confidential. So they limit certain confidentiality claims uh, for CDR processing and use information. So EPA is proposing that certain data elements cannot be claimed confidential because they're more like general descriptions, but you can make claims for information that are more specific, like percent, uh, percent production volume, number of sites, and number of workers. And once again, there are some uh, substantiation questions you have to answer. And then finally, just a note about joint submissions. Uh, if, you're, if a primary submitter asks a secondary submitter to provide information directly to EPA in a joint submission, only the primary submitter can assert a confidentiality claim for the data it directly submits to EPA. And then similarly, if, if uh, the secondary submitter is responsible for asserting all confidentiality claims uh, for the data elements that it submits directly to EPA for those claims. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Sherman. I appreciate that. So um, I was sort of, sort of puzzling through why 
chemical identity is so important. Uh, certainly with an old chemical, you need a specific chemical identity in order to do literature searches, right? Mm-hmm. So you can do literature search, look it up on the Internet. Mm-hmm. But for new chemicals that no one's ever heard of before, uh, I don't know why you actually need the specific chemical identity and what purpose to be served. Um, you know, generic names are just fine. Mass names gives enough information about the chemical to be able to get some sense. Oh, my God, this is a phthalate or whatever. Uh, and so I'm not really sure why this is all needed to be disclosed. Secondly, I'm not really sure why anybody needs full study reports uh, that are submitted to the EPA from the REACH program. You know, as you know, the European Chemical Agency uh, publishes on their websites uh, what are called robust study reports of each study that's submitted to them. Uh, these are supposed to be designed to give you all the information you need about a study in order to look at its, uh, determine its reliability and its validity and the information that's in the study. Uh, and EPA and ECHA publishes all that. So I don't really know what possible purpose to be served by forcing EPA to disgorge uh, and companies to relinquish compensation rights uh, the full study reports that submitted on these REACH programs. I think that this issue has to be resolved because if, in fact, EPA has to release ultimately the full study reports with no redactions, uh, then companies are not going to be willing to provide this information, and the only people that suffer are the public because the scientific robustness of the risk evaluations that EPA conducts under TSCA are going to be lacking. So I hope this issue is resolved. I hope that those that are pushing for more and more uh, trade secrecy disclosure uh, sit back and try to think of this from a holistic point of view as to what's really important and whether or not uh, they need every page of a, of a study uh, which has already been fully summarized uh, in a robust, incredible way and disseminated by the European Chemical Agency on the website. So that's a good segue talking about REACH because the next program in four minutes is our April uh, REACH 3030. There are 171 people on this call. So that's what, quite impressive. We'll see how many stay for the REACH program. Thank you very much. I suppose next month, as I said, would be CDR, unless EPA comes out with something more interesting. Take care, everybody. Herb Stryker and Jabonet Nakumaran. Oh, next slide. Uh, go back. Oh, I mean, we have to tell you where the dates are. Oh, yeah. There's an OSHA. Sorry. There's an. I promise to give you these the pitches. There's an OSHA uh, 3030 April 24th. The next task at 3030 is May 15th. Uh, is there? There's a reach one on May 15th as well. We used to have something for the pesticide one, but I guess we've given up on that. Uh, take care, everybody. See you in a couple minutes. <laughs>